The reading is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. I do love that song. Uh, reminder that we come before a God of mercy and a God who speaks to us mercifully uh, in his word. Great to have you with us. We are going to look at that passage Cherry read for us uh, just a moment ago, but before we uh, dig into it, uh, I've got a picture, I think, uh, of somebody called Simon Sinek that's going to appear on the screen. And he's the author of a number of books, and one of those books is called Start With Why?, And in that book, what Simon Sinek says is, if you're leading a a cause or a movement, or you're you're leading a company, and you want people to buy into what you're doing, you don't just tell them what you do. You tell them why. If they get your why, if they get your purpose, what you're all about, if they buy your why, they'll invest. They'll say, I'm all in. And he gives some great examples. He says, in the 1960s in America... Martin Luther King wasn't the only person who was talking about civil rights, but he was the one people bought into, because he didn't just tell them what he wanted, he told them what he believed, he told them why he was doing it, and people caught the vision. Or he uses an example from business as well, he's in business, and he talks about Apple, And you might know that Apple products, iPhones and iMacs and all that sort of stuff, uh, they have a very loyal customer base. Some people will tell you there's nothing like a Mac. Why? It's because Apple don't just make great computers. Other companies make great computers too. Apple tell you why they do it, that they're challenging the status quo, that they are innovative. And if you believe what they're all about, you will invest in them. You will say, I am all in. If you believe what someone believes, if you, if you buy their why, you'll be all in, completely invested. Why do I mention that? I, I think it helps us understand something that's happening in this passage. Uh, throughout our series, we've been looking at responses to Jesus, and the question has been in the air, who is Jesus? Uh, and those two questions are connected, who is he and how do I respond to him? We've seen some good responses, some of the crowds, the the Canaanite woman. We've seen some bad responses, like last week with the Pharisees just demanding more evidence, or maybe a few weeks back, King Herod not responding to Jesus. 
well. But now we zero in on Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the apostles, and we look at his response, and he comes into center stage. And what we see here is an amazing turning point in Matthew's gospel. Something big happens here. You can tell that from the way Jesus responds. Lots of people have been saying, oh, we think you're the son of God. We think you're this. We think you're that. But Jesus never does quite what he does here, where he says, blessed are you, Peter. You've got something. Something's clicked. What is it that Peter has got? And I think it relates to that question of, of the why. Peter buys Jesus why. He, he's, he's seen what Jesus is here for, what he's all about. And Peter says here, I'm all in. I'm invested in you and what you've come to do, Jesus. So we're going to think about two things. And here's the first one. Peter sets Jesus apart from the crowd. Peter sets Jesus apart from the crowd. What is it that Peter has seen? Well, to do that, Matthew, Matthew explains that to us by comparing Peter with the crowd. So in verse 13, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man is kind of a, a sort of fairly vague way of referring to a man or a human being. So it's a way Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels very often. Who do people say this man is? What do the crowds think? He asks his disciples. And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. People can see Jesus is something. He's, he's come from God. And worth noting in passing that the people that Jesus reminds others of are brave people, courageous people, people who stood up to those in power and told them the truth even when it hurt, even when it cost them just gives you a little window into the kind of man Jesus was. Brave, willing to tell the truth, even when it hurts, even when it costs him. But then Jesus brushes past that, and in verse 15, he says, but what about you? And the you is plural. So he's talking to his 12 closest followers, the apostles. Uh, And he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And if you've been following our series from the beginning, this is an interesting moment because right back at the start, remember when we did the parable of the sower? Uh, Jesus said, look, to those in the crowds, they just hear in parables. But the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are given to you. You guys have an inside track. You have a privilege. So now, having had that inside track, having been close with Jesus, what are they going to make of him? Who do they say? that he is. And then verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter is the first person in Matthew's gospel on his lips to say Jesus is the Messiah. That's the new thing Peter said. He said, you are the Messiah. And so just worth exploring for a moment, what does that mean? So Messiah uh, comes from a Hebrew word, and it means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were all sorts of people who were anointed. There's a table here. You might not be able to see it. Hope you can if, if you're at the back, but I'll work through it with us. So kings were anointed 
in the Old Testament, like King David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, and they were anointed for a special job. Their job was to bring God's rule to his people so the people knew how to live for God and follow him. In the Old Testament, prophets were anointed. The prophet Elisha is anointed in 1 Kings. And the prophets were anointed for a job as well. And their job was to call the people to come back to God. And in the Old Testament, priests are anointed, like Aaron and his sons in the book of Leviticus. And their job that they're anointed for is to make people acceptable to God. They have sacrifices and cleansing rituals so that the people can be holy and acceptable to God. All these people are anointed for special jobs. But what those jobs have in common is they're trying to bring God and his people back together. The story of the Bible is that we were made for a beautiful relationship with the living God, the God of life. We were made for love and light and life and joy forever. But we turn away from it. In Genesis 3, human beings say they don't want that. And that brings all sorts of consequences into the world. The worst of all is death itself. That's what happens when you walk away from the God of life. And it's tragic, but there's been a split in the relationship between God and his people. We've walked away from the God of life, and the consequences are death. And all these anointed people, these little messiahs, messiah small m, They all played different roles, but they were trying to repair that relationship, to bring the people back to God, to make a reconciliation. But throughout the Old Testament, there's a hint, there's a clue, a growing clue as you walk through, that they're all preparing you for a very special person. And the Jews came to understand that this person, uh, they called them the Messiah, the prophet to end all prophets, the priest to end all priests, the king to end all kings, the one who will come and repair that broken relationship, who will overcome death itself and bring us back to the God of life. All God's plans, all God's promises, all God's purposes would be bound up in this one person, the final anointed one the Messiah. And that's what Peter is saying in verse 16. Jesus, you're that one, aren't you? You're the one who's come to fulfill everything God had promised for his people. Uh, The king to which all the other kings point. The prophet to which all the other prophets point. The priest to which all the other priests point, Jesus. That's who you are. And that's huge. He's the first person to twig it just like that in Matthew's gospel. And you might compare Peter to John the Baptist. You might not know the story, but in Matthew 11, a few chapters back, John's still alive and he's in prison. And he sends two of his disciples to Jesus. And he he sends them with a question. And he says to Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect another? John there in prison, not quite sure. Are you the one? Or or is there going to be another one? And Jesus said, in the history of the world, no one who's been born is greater than John. John gets it more clearly than anyone else up to that point. 
And then he says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And this is Peter, the first disciple in Matthew's gospel. And the first one to get it. And he's greater than John because he's seen what what even John wasn't sure of. Jesus is the one who was to come. We don't need to look for another. He's it. Now, it's one thing, isn't it, to say Jesus is great like the crowds do. It's something else to say he's the greatest that there's ever been. But it's something else, again, to say not only is he the greatest person up to this point, but there's no one to follow him. In all the people who will live after Jesus, no one will be as great as him. No one will do what he will do because he is the Messiah, the one and only one who can restore our relationship with God and bring us back into the life and light and joy that we were made for. That takes some insight, doesn't it? To understand that. How can you know that? Uh, Maybe a word here to our our pathfinders and platformers who are with us. Uh, I think maybe particularly hard for you uh, as young people with your whole life ahead of you. Lots of options and opportunities and things to consider. And and maybe you're hopeful about the future and maybe you're not. But but you're like, well, something could come. Something might be happening in the future. How can I put all my eggs in Jesus' basket? How can I say I'm all in on him, someone who lived 2,000 years ago, and say nothing and no one else will come that's greater than him? It, It takes insight, doesn't it? And the answer is, Peter didn't get there on his own. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. It takes God to make it clear that that is who Jesus is, that you can go all in on Jesus. Sometimes people think Christians are arrogant for saying that Jesus is the only way, or or for saying that he is this one and he's greater than everyone before and anyone who will ever be. But please note, we don't think that because we're clever, because we've figured it out for ourselves. We can only see that if God reveals it to us. It's not arrogance, but humility to accept what God has revealed. And he has revealed that that is who Jesus is. He reveals it to Peter, and through Peter's mouth, he reveals it to us. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Maybe you're here today, and you're still weighing up whether you think that about Jesus or not. Maybe you have loved ones, friends, family. And they're still not sure. Do I want to go all in on Jesus? Well, the obvious response from this is we need to pray. If it's you or if it's someone you care about, pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for them. Father, reveal it. Father of Jesus Christ, reveal who he is to me. And... The Father does reveal here to Peter that Jesus isn't just another one. Not one in a succession. He is the one. Peter sets Jesus apart from the crowd. And then secondly, the second thing we see is that then Jesus sets Peter apart for the church. Uh, Peter's gone all in on Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, I'm going all in on you. 
I'm investing in you too. Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's a word play there, Peter means rock. So Jesus points at Peter and says, uh, on this rock I will build my church. You might know this has been a cause of much debate down the centuries. Uh, So uh, many Roman Catholics believe that this is the point at which Jesus begins the papacy. So he's appointing Peter here to a special role as the first pope, uh, and all the ones who follow Peter can also be pope. Some people reacted quite strongly against that, and they want to say, oh, he's not talking about Peter at all. He's just talking about the confession that Peter makes, nothing more than that. Can I say I think both those things are uh, not quite right? I think he's obviously pointing at Peter here. On this rock, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys, he goes on to say. It's obviously Peter that he's talking about, not just the words Peter says. But he doesn't say anything here about Peter's successors. Uh, What Jesus is doing, I believe, is saying, Peter, you are going to have a special role in my plan of salvation for the world. You're going to be given keys. These are the keys of the steward of the house. So it's not the picture of Peter at the pearly gates with the keys to let people in. It's the steward of the house opening the storehouses and arranging what's going on in the house, and and organizing and managing the house. Uh, And the interpreters say, the commentators say, these keys are the the right to determine what's right and wrong for the church, to interpret the scriptures. And Peter plays that role in history. In the book of Acts, you can see it. He leads the early church, and he makes big decisions from the scriptures. He, He understands what the scriptures mean. And he decides, he's he's one of the ones, the first ones to say, God's plan is not just for Jews. Gentiles can be part of the church too. That would be a good example of Peter using the keys, making the big decisions, arranging and managing the household of God. And in Acts, you can see him doing that several times. And Jesus says, Peter, that's a special job you're going to have. And I'm gone all in on you. You're going to do it properly. You're going to do it well. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. I take it that's a promise that that Peter will make the right calls. And as Peter makes the right calls, uh, so too the other apostles who are with Peter, they're a unified team, make the right calls. And they write it down for us in the New Testament. It's there for us to see. So so what does this mean for us? It's not about uh, having a pope or something like that, I I take it. But what does it mean for us? It it means we can trust that Peter and the other apostles did the job Jesus gave them properly. They built on the foundation that Jesus had laid for them. They were the rock that Jesus built his church on. And, And we have that in the New Testament. And so as the church, our job is to keep building on the foundation they have laid, to return to what they have said and done in the New Testament if we want to know how to continue building Jesus' church. And in the 39 articles, which are the confession of faith of the Church of England, I think the Church of England gets this spot on. Um, So in Article 20, it uh, says this. It'll come up on the screen. The church is a witness and a keeper of holy writ. That's the Bible. It ought not to decree anything against the same. 
In other words, the job of the church is to carry on building on the rock that Jesus laid. To look back to the New Testament, to the Bible, to see how we're to arrange, manage, and do things. That's the application for us. If we want to be part of the church that Jesus is building, we build on the same foundation that Peter laid. We continue to go back to the Scriptures. But as we come toward uh, the end of this sermon, you might have a question ringing in your ears, and that question might be, why would I want to be part of the church? (laughs) The church gets a pretty bad press, doesn't it? Um, Whether it's scandal or decline, is it really worth being a part of? Well, look back at verse 18 with me again. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, says Jesus. My church. Uh, Church just means congregation or assembly. That's what the word means. Similar is the same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to the people of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai. It's the gathering of Jesus' people, his church. And the thing is, Jesus, remember who Peter's found out that he is? He's the Messiah, the one who restores that broken relationship with the God of life. And therefore, the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. The gates of Hades or the gates of death, the underworld. Um, Jesus is speaking at Mount Hermon, and that's a view of Mount Hermon there. You can see the kind of almost jaw-like shape of the mountain. It, It was a place that was renowned for sort of evil spiritual forces in the Old Testament. And death had come to symbolize the the most vicious enemy of God's people. And Jesus stands at the foot of that mountain, the very place where death is symbolized, the enemy and the opposition to God are symbolized, and says, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. And the gates of death, the gates that that you can almost see there, the jaws of death, they're not going to overcome. Death is not going to stop Jesus' church. And Jesus rose from the dead himself to prove it. Why buy in? Why go all in like Peter does? Well, if the last year and a bit has taught us anything, hasn't it been the sting of death? So many have died. Many more of us have been fearful of death. Understandably so, it is an enemy. But Jesus says, the church I'm building will not be imprisoned by death. It will overcome the gates of death. The promise of Jesus is life with him forever on the other side of the grave. And he has shown that that is true by beating death in his resurrection. And so Jesus invites all of us to see what Peter saw, who he is, to go all in on him because the hope and promise that he offers to his church is amazing. Now, Peter hasn't yet understood it all. Verse 20 tells them to be quiet. We'll learn more about why that is next week. Uh, Because he's not yet understood that Jesus will have to die and then come back to defeat death. And yet there is a precious promise here. Those who go all in on Jesus, like Peter did, those who buy Jesus' wine, They're part of his church. 
and the gates of death themselves will never overcome those who do that. We're going to listen to a song in just a moment. I think it's a great song for personal reflection from what we've heard from God's word. It talks about where we're going to build our lives, where we're going to put our hope. Are we going to go all in on Jesus or not? You might like to use it as a prayer of response, but let me pray before we listen. Father, we thank you for who Jesus is. Thank you that you have revealed that to Peter, that you've revealed it to many of us. And we pray that we would be grateful in response. We would see he is the Messiah. We would not be looking for another. And we would be thankful for what he has come to do to restore us in relationship with you, the God of life, and therefore to overcome the sting of death, the final enemy. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.